Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we've got joining us in Fort Worth, Texas, Dr. Kent Brantley. How are you, Kent? Good. Good, Luke. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, Sorry it took so long. Well, you know, at first I was starting to get offended. You know, you had... You went to the White House, talked to Obama, you went to Congress, you had Matt Lauer, and I thought, why is Kent blowing me off? And then I realized I switched emails. You probably have my ACU email address. That's probably the problem. That was it. That was it. That was it the whole time. No, man, you've been so busy. It is crazy to see all the stuff that's been going on the last year since your you know, miraculous recovery from Ebola, and you're just here now. So that's very, very crazy. Yeah, it's been... It's hard to believe it's been one year, but it's also, it seems like it was so long ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I first saw you in May at Pepperdine Lectures and I talk to people a lot and I'm a preacher. I like interact with people. I do a podcast. I make small talk. And the first time I saw you, I was like, you said, Hey Luke. And I was like, Hey, Hey, Hey Kit, <laughs> how, how are you? How are you feeling? Like, I didn't even know what to say, which I'm assuming there's a lot of people that have that sort of like awkward Hey, um, how's the Ebola doing kind of stuff? Well, it, we've been doing book signings lately and it's, we did one at my home church where I grew up, spent the first 28 years of my life there. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was really cool to, to get to have that experience there. But it's also really weird to have people that have known you your entire life lining up to take a picture with you and get your signature in their book. That was, that yeah. was weird. Yeah. Is it weirder having people you know or people you don't know who come up to you for that kind of stuff? Probably weirder having people I know come up to me for that kind of stuff. It's weird um, having people, people I know and people I don't know, but especially people I know who now know things about me that I've never told them. Oh, yeah. Because they saw it in the news or they read it somewhere. Yeah, they read a book about, because in your book you tell like how you and Amber fell in love and the very romantic story of dropping her off the airport and saying, all right, had fun. I'll see you later. Yeah. They told, you told us about the mixtape that she, she made for you. And I feel like now I'm, I'm stalking you because I know those things, but you wrote them in a book. Yeah. Yeah, we did. <laughs> it's, it's, we didn't really hold anything back. No, no. And that's why it turned out well. That's why it turned out well. But Stormont told me something. He said that they, Jonathan Stormont, our friend, was uh, you guys went to dinner somewhere, macaroni grill or something. And someone came up to you and didn't ask for a picture, but they just wanted to like give you a hug and say, I'm so glad you're okay. And I think your wife, Amber, told Leslie, Jonathan's wife, that that happens all the time where people aren't asking for pictures, which is kind of like the normal thing of someone. who. And do I call you a celebrity right now? Because you kind of are. I, my, I, I think the best way that I've heard it put is my unfortunate celebrity well i don't know if you can call getting ebola fortunate so let's go with unfortunate celebrity but you're like an unfortunate celebrity people don't want pictures they want hugs with you do you have any like have you figured out what's going on what why that is on a real serious note that is we saw the impact that that our story was having on people and I don't understand. I still don't understand it. Hmm. But God has used our situation to work in the lives of so many people, people that knew us, people that didn't know us. And I don't, I don't, I'm still amazed every day at how 
God is working and I am on the fringe, some part of it. Yeah. And it's, it, it blows my mind. It's weird. It's awesome. It's, yeah. it's, I don't know. Obviously I'm assuming it's easy for you to say, this is the work of God when you're doing your medical practice, when you're do like when you're physically helping people using the skills that God has given you, that's clear. Okay. God's working that. But afterwards, what are some of the ways that people have said your story has worked in their life? With that, it is, it is, it was a lot easier for me to see how I was doing the work of God when I'm treating people yeah. who have an illness that would otherwise not have treatment, showing compassion to people in need who otherwise would be suffering alone. It is harder for me right now to, to see how I am living out God's calling in my life because this is not the calling that I, hmm. that I saw for a decade ahead of time. Yeah. But, you know, people are telling me about how, how their prayer life was strengthened when they felt the urge to pray for me mm -hmm. or how their faith was strengthened when they, when they looked at our circumstances and what the life we had chosen and the way we had given up some of the comforts of life. And they look at their own circumstances and say, you know what, maybe I need, maybe I need to live a little less comfortably. No. And I, I wondered why our story had such an impact. Forget the the rest of the world. Why did it have such an impact on our home church here in Fort Worth? I could understand why a near death experience like that would impact my close friends. Mm -hmm. But what about the other 200 or 300 people here that I didn't really know mm -hmm. that well? And in October, as we were coming back to Texas for the first time, I got to listen to the sermons from July 27th and August 3rd, which were the Sunday after my diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. It was actually the, the one this, the Sunday before my diagnosis and the Sunday after my diagnosis, Randy Harris was here yeah. preaching and the Sunday before anybody knew that Kent was sick, he preached a sermon about God working in the darkness and about how God longs to crawl in to our dark moments and work good. Hmm. And it was like he preached that sermon. And then a few days later, people started finding out that I was sick. It's like God was saying, I want to work in the darkness. Do you need to see here? Here's a dark Here's a dark situation close to home. And the sermon that he had planned to preach the following Sunday, the day after my diagnosis, was about being transformed by prayer. That praying in a transformative way. One of the phrases he used was pray in such a way that God could hurt your feelings. And and it was, again, like I was just the object lesson. Hmm. You need something to pray about in a transformative way here. Here's this dark situation close to home that I'm going to work in, pray about it. And I, I realized that one of the reasons that for my, my church family here, one of the reasons that there was such a big impact is because we were like the object lesson yeah. for what God was already doing here. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I heard Randy say that he called you right before he preached that second sermon and he found out the night before and didn't know what to say. Which is crazy because, you know, Randy Harris is a, like a 
spiritual mentor for both of us, someone who seems to always have the right thing to say. It took him a while to call you. He calls you right before he preaches that second sermon. And he says that you tell him one story from the Old Testament and you reference that, the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story. And I think there was a line that you said that even if we go into the fiery furnace, we're still going to have faith or we're not going to bow down or whatever. Yeah. Is that true? Is that right? Yeah, the, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we know our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to your idol. And I don't, I don't remember if I had really been meditating on that story or if it just came to mind when Randy asked me, what are you, what are you thinking about these days? How do you feel? And, and I suddenly identified with those, those three young Hebrew boys. And I, I thought, I know God can save me from this. I mean, I know Ebola is not uniformly fatal, Mm -hmm. but it has an incredibly high mortality rate, but I know that God can save me from it. But even if he doesn't, I desperately want to be faithful. I don't want to be that guy who was faithful to the point of moving his wife and young children to Africa just to give up in the end because he got sick. Hmm. There was somewhere, maybe it was in the book, but you talked about being, your prayer was to be faithful even in sickness. What did you think that looked like? Was that what you're talking about? Like not giving up even at the end, not giving up your hope or your faith in God? I, I think it was... I think to me what was what was being faithful in my sickness it wasn't it wasn't to hold on to hope that God was going to save me hmm. it was it was to not I don't know maybe to not blame God to not be angry about my circumstances did you feel angry at at, I, at any point no I, I really didn't. I, I had a trem- I, I was, I was afraid. I was fearful. I was incredibly anxious. In fact, I was, I was probably more anxious than I remember because my caregivers have told me about trying to deal with my anxiety at, at different times. But what I remember is, is a piece that this, it just, it just is. I have Ebola and I might die, but it's okay. Like I knew, I, I knew that in moving to Liberia, we were living out God's calling on our lives. And so if I got Ebola and died because I was living out the calling God had given me, it's okay. Hmm. I, I retrospectively, I think I've learned more about about that. I mean, I, I feel like looking back on my circumstances and thinking about what, when Paul said for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like I understand that now better than I did before, but it's something really? I've learned looking back on my, on How my so? circumstances. If, if God is really our ultimate desire, the source of our ultimate joy. If if there is nothing in this world or in this life that we want more than to be with God, then, then death really is gain because death is when we finally get to be in the presence of God. And I've realized that if I had died in Liberia, it would have been gain. 
And that's really, it's on my better days, I can see that. But what about on the days where you say, I've got a wife, a young wife, two kids. I had this debate with my wife over, maybe we'll talk about the, the, the medicine and you give part to Nancy. And there's part of this going, okay, if you've got a lady who's, how old was she? 59. 59. Okay. You're 30 ish. You've got young kids. Like what is the more resp- and I, I said the very crass, like, cause she's your friend of course, but like, what's more responsible? You give it to the, the, the father of two little kids. And, and do, isn't that part of like your thought process as you're thinking through this? Like, okay, it might be good for me to be with God, but I, I'm, I'm upset because my kids and, and what they're going to go through. Was that part of your thinking? I, Again, I, I didn't have a lot of time for introspection and reflection when I was sick. I mean, I Fair was, enough. I was sick. My mind was not clear. I was, I don't remember a lot of my illness. Oh, really? Yeah, I really don't. But in my reflections on what I've been through, I, I recognize on my better days, like I said, that for me to, to die would have been gain. But the first part of that is for to me to live as Christ. Mm-hmm. And again, this is, I'm talking about on my better days, not most days, <laughs> yeah, not yeah, my yeah. average day, but on my better days, I, I recognize that my life really is not about my wife or my children. Hmm. It is about Christ. And, and because I'm alive, I really do have a responsibility to use my life in a way that that reflects Christ to the world, starting most importantly with my wife and my children. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, there was somebody told me about Martin Luther writing to Christians in the midst of the plague in Europe, and he he told them, "Look, if you have to, if if you feel the need to leave to flee, that's fine. But if you stay where you are to care for those who are suffering from this plague." And if you die as a result, you're dying a good death. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that would have been true for me. I'm glad I'm alive. I'm really glad I'm, I'm glad I didn't die. Mm-hmm. But I want desperately to live in the reality that says for to me to live is Christ, but to die would be gain. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we desire death. It doesn't mean we, we want to not live. Because yeah. we have a lot to live for. But but when we don't fear death, what can we not do for God? Yeah, that's true. I mean, if, you, if you think about what keeps us from, from really living our lives all out for God, ultimately what it boils down to is the fear of death. Hmm. What do you think that looks like, the fear of death that prevents us from living it out? Well, like, cause I'm not like, one. Go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, I like, I don't want to go into an area that like 11,000 people are dying from this terrible disease and this dignity stripping illness. Like I'm, I'm not really excited about that. Like that's terrifying. Yeah. And, and I think ultimately that's the fear of death. You don't want to die. <laughs> yes. Ex- yes. Very much so. And, and it's not that in a lot of ways, it's probably easier to live out your faith when things are that clear cut, when it's like, okay, 
I'm going to step into a dangerous place where I could die, Mm -hmm. but I'm doing it for Christ. Let's go. Mm -hmm. That's a lot easier in some ways than to live wholeheartedly for Christ in the mundaneness of our usual everyday lives. Okay, I'll take that deal. I'll take the mundane. You you take in front of Ebola. Deal? Deal. Okay. Okay, you, you famously say in your press conference that God healed me. Like you're in Atlanta, you have the press conference, everyone's there, everyone's watching it. The whole world seemed to be watching this press conference. And you make this statement, God healed me. Which, well, what I said was God saved my life. Oh, yeah, God saved my life. Okay, excuse me. I clearly wasn't watching that well. No, no. Well, the reason I draw a distinction is because that's something I really wrestle with. Okay, how so? Okay, did God heal me? Like a miraculous healing, like a supernatural intervention in my body kind of healing? Mm-hmm. Or am I, did I survive because of the experimental drug and the blood transfusions and the medical treatment and the, uh, my, my own immune system. And that, uh, that's not an either or, I don't think, I mean, I, God saved my life. I think he used all of those people who took care of me, the science behind the, the experimental drug that, that the treatment that was afforded me at Emory. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that God healed me and those other things had nothing to do with it. But I'm alive, and and it would be it would be dishonest of me to not give credit to God. Mm-hmm. All of those people who took care of me, they know they know that I give them credit for saving my life. But you're okay with the duality duality of God saved me and people saved. Maybe God saved you through people and science and technology and. It, you don't have to separate one from the other, right? Right, right. Do, so do you feel – is that a question that people have asked you a lot, like where they've said, well, how did God save you? But if – you know, what about the 11,000 people that passed away and were there some 100 or like 89 other healthcare professionals in Africa that are trying to fight Ebola that passed away? And so they asked the question, well, how come God saved you and not the – is that a question you've been asked a lot? Yeah. Okay. Actually, I was, I was on a radio program yesterday. And the lady asked me about, she said, a lot of, a lot of people prayed for you. Maybe millions of people prayed for you and you credit the, that prayer with playing a role in your survival. But what about the 11,000 people who died? Many of them who prayed earnestly for their own lives, who had lots of people praying for them. There was something about the way she worded the question. It kind of set me back, and I don't feel like I answered her question very well. You got a chance right now. It's too bad. It was a, it was a live radio program. Luckily, this is a podcast, so you've got your chance. You can edit this. If I, I can. If I, screw but up. I never edit, but I could if theoretically. No, I, something that Amber and I have learned through this whole circumstance is that it's okay to live in this really uncomfortable place of not having all the answers. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of Christians are are not willing to live in that space. We don't. We don't. It's uncomfortable. Um, I think some people view it as as maybe not having faith. If you are if you're offering these questions of how how does this all work? Because I don't. When I look at our 
situation, I don't know how prayer works. And I don't, I understand even less now than what I thought I did before about how God works in the world. If we read scripture and we see stories like Joseph and my whole life, I've read the story of Joseph and I've seen how his brother sold him into slavery. And that led to a series of events where he became the ruler of Egypt and was able to save his brother's lives. And he says, you intended it for harm, but God meant it for good. And I, in my whole life, I've seen that God is the one who was behind all of that. And even though Joseph spent years in prison and, you know, was accused of all sorts of false things, but ultimately God worked it for God. God was using that to work good. Mm-hmm. I have a really hard time seeing myself in that story. Like imagining that I could be somebody whose life God is orchestrating through bad things to ultimately bring about something good that he had planned way ahead of time, that, that this was all part of it, that, that before the beginning of time, he planned for a person named Kent Brantley to get Ebola so that he could do something good in the world. Maybe that's how he works. I'm not denying that that could be how God works, but I have a really hard time buying into that when there are 11,294 other people who died in the outbreak Hmm. where I got sick and survived. I I can't just say, oh, it's because a lot of people prayed for me. No, no. So the first person that you saw was a a girl, uh, 11-ish, is that about right? Nine, 11? Our our first patient? Yeah. Our first patient with Ebola or the... I thought the first patient with the the first patient with Ebola. She was like thirty. Yeah, she was like thirty. Twenty eight. I was yeah. way off on the number, wasn't I? Well, my first. I tell a story in the book about my very first patient in the hospital who had diabetes, DKA, and it was a twelve year old boy. Maybe that, you're getting those. Yeah. Well, you said the DKA, and I was lost. So, <laughs> see, the difference is you have a Bible degree and a medical degree. I just have Bible degrees. I don't know the rest of this med- medicine stuff. But you okay? But it's you okay? I don't remember much of my Greek. <laughs> Did we take Greek together? Uh, probably. No, I don't I think don't so. Know. I think you were ahead of me in in Greek because I started late. Okay, well, I was just trying. To, I mean, because I want to pretend like I still know it. And if you saw me in class, you wouldn't believe me when I said, "Yeah, I do know a lot of Greek." But so y- you see kids, you see families that are dying, like they're seeing their their little kids dying, and and I mean, just terrible stuff. Does that affect? your theology, does it change it? Or is that something that you had going into it that already had a big enough worldview that made sense of this kind of stuff? Um, so Randy Harris asked me once, what, what informs your theology more, your experience with Ebola or the nine months of living and working in Liberia before Ebola? And I answered without hesitation, the nine months before Ebola. Really? Ebola was not the first time I had seen firsthand this kind of overwhelming suffering and the disparities in life and the tragedies of, of life and death that we don't often face in America. I had seen that before, and I had lived it for nine months before Ebola. Ebola was like all of that on steroids. You know, it was it was it was harder and, and horrible and tragic 
but I had had so many horrible, tragic experiences over the last nine months before Ebola that that helped shape or that influenced the way I I see God working in the world. And I I remember one of the Liberian doctors, Dr. Patrick, came and got me off the ward one day. And he grabbed me by the arm. He said, you need to come see this. And he dragged me to the emergency room. And he pulled back a curtain. And there was a, a, this may be too graphic for your audience, I don't know. There was a young child that had died. Like an 18-month-old. And that child probably had malaria. Something like malaria. But that's not what had killed the child. The child had had died because after being sick for a few days and having a fever, the baby wasn't eating. So the mom did what a traditional practice there called stuffing, where she forced food into the baby's mouth because she, you know, the idea is if they don't eat, they won't live. Okay. So she shoved food into this baby's mouth. The baby choked on the food and died. Oh. And, and Dr. Patrick's point to me was, he said, you read about under five mortality, about the causes of death for children under five around the world. It's a topic in medicine. He said, you read about under five mortality in Africa, and you read about things like malaria and tuberculosis and typhoid. He said, this is under five mortality in Africa. It's mothers who've never been taught to read and don't know not to shove food in their baby's mouths. And I don't, I don't know how that relates to the sovereignty of God, but it's experiences like that that inform. Yeah, but you have to hold that experience right in front of you as you're processing the idea that God is good, God is love. My my wife's a nurse like your wife. She's a NICU nurse, and so she works one day a week, and she's always coming home with stories that are just heartbreaking. Yeah, and they're different, but they're still heartbreaking. Anytime someone's kid doesn't make it, it's terrifying, and. For me, like, as I'm trying to understand the world and do theology, it's like, if if it's not good news in that room, then it's not good news at all. And so as you're trying to process, what does it mean for God to be loving and good? And you're seeing terrible stuff like that. uh, That's got to be the tension that I would find to be most overwhelming. One of my mentors uh, told me about taking his teenage son to Auschwitz every when each of his kids turned 18 or so, he would take them on a trip wherever they wanted to go. So he took his son to Europe, and mm-hmm. one of the places they visited was Auschwitz. And they were standing in front of the ovens where people were were killed. Part of... Yeah. And, and he told his son, whatever you come to believe about God it has to make sense right here. And I, I feel like I've been through that experience where you're standing in front of the, the most horrific tragedy in the world and whatever, like you're saying, whatever you believe about God, it has to make sense in the midst of that. Uh, Oh, that's, that's tough. All right, let's, let's get out of this. This is too, (laughs) too painful. This is too dark. Okay. Your book is, Entitled Called for Life. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, good. Called for Life. And so you talk, uh, you tell the story about when the going get tough, the tough, 
go back to their calling. I completely botched that, didn't no, I? That was, that was right. That's that was good. Okay, good. Now, so you're obviously someone that has, people look at and go, you have, you've clearly suffered for the calling that you have. And, you know, I can relate to it. You know, one time I'm a church planner and one time I got a cut on my thumb when I was setting up and it was really deep and I ended up passing out right before church. And then I've got a scar. You want to see that right you, there? You still had to go on preaching, didn't you? I got up right after passing out and I preached. And so we both are people who've suffered for the gospel. Yeah. And so a lot of people yeah. look at both. <laughs> I can't even go on with a straight face. That's terrible. But okay. So people hear you talk about your calling and there is a story in the book that it's before you get to Liberia, before you decide, um, or before you know Ebola breaks out, before you get sick. It's a story about you and Amber coming to your elders. I guess right here, showing them. Is this in this, in this very room? room? Yeah. So you're sitting in this very room, around this very table, and you show them your budget, and you say, "What can we cut out so that we can be more, you know, responsible, save up more money, so we can go do mission work?" And they say, "Oh, there's not really much you can do." And then you go to your landlord and say, "Hey." I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to go to Africa. I'm going to help really sick people. You're kind of hoping they give you a hookup. Well, it really back up a step. Okay. We brought our budget to this committee at our church who helps people with bills and stuff. And we told them we're, we're not behind on our bills. We don't need help paying our electricity this month or anything, but we recognize that we were not living within our means. You know, we had a small amount of savings when we moved to Fort Worth and we recognized that month to month as we paid our bills and, and bought our groceries, we were chipping away at that savings. And we were, we were trying to be responsible with our money because we knew we were going to be missionaries. We knew we we're going to be living on people's support. And we, even if that wasn't the case, we're responsible for being, for being good stewards of the resources God makes available to us. Mm -hmm. And we weren't living within our means. Yeah. And we tried cutting back on our eating out or whatever. And we, so that's why we brought the budget to this committee and said, do you see anything else that we can, can cut back on or some way that we can live within our means? Cause all we see is that our rent is more than we can afford. Hmm. Okay. And, and so, so it wasn't, it wasn't totally like, Hey, we're going to be missionaries and can you help us save money? It was, oh, okay. we've got to live within our means. Yes. We're going to be missionaries and living on, on fundraise support in the future. So it's going to be super critical that we live within our means and are good stewards of the funds that people give us in the future. But that means we need to do it now. And they agreed. There's nothing we could cut out except our rent. And I went to the landlord and said, yeah, I was hoping, I was hoping he would say, they give you the oh, well, let's, let's negotiate the rent. Yeah. But he didn't. He said, I won't penalize you if you need to break your lease. Well, you should send him an email and say, I got Ebola because of you. You should blame it all on him. <laughs> okay. So, Jonathan, I think this is Storm. I think he blogged this. And he said something about or he wrote something about how long it took you to make the decision to give up part of the treatment to Nancy. Like this is the this is the uh, experimental medicine. They're gonna, there's only one batch of it. So, you know, it should go to you. And you said, no, let's divide it up, me and Nancy. And Storman said, it didn't take you seconds. It took you a decade because all the years before you've made decision after decision after decision of someone who's going to live out what it means to be a disciple. Do you see that kind of as a building process? I, yeah. And I, I, I read that blog that he wrote and he's, he, uh, paints me in, in far too saintly of light, see, but he blogs about me and it makes me sound terrible. <laughs> 
You should feel lucky. Well, so he, so he, it's, it's, he's just, it's fair play. He, he paints some people too bright and some mm. people too dark. So if you just mix us together, we're true. I'll find you'll find the truth in the middle somewhere. <laughs> no, but, but I, but I think his point was really well made. That we don't, we don't make the decisions of a disciple in a moment. It starts with making small decisions all along the way, and and. I, I, I think he's right. I think that decision about giving the medicine to Nancy, it wasn't a heroic, uh, self-sacrificing decision, first of all. It was a rational, medical, decision-making kind of decision. She was sicker than I was. I thought I had turned the corner. I thought I was being evacuated the next day. Mm-hmm. Turns out that was all wrong. But, But I've had people thank me for the courage of moving to Africa and I tell him thanks, but it wasn't like Amber and I heard God call us one day and say, you need to go to Africa. And we said, okay, yes, we'll go. It started with decisions like trying to live within our means and saying, you know what? We can't really afford to live in the house we're living in and with, with, with the income we have. So the responsible thing to do is to move into a, a cheaper place. And that's not comfortable. But it was a small decision that helped us make decisions in the future that were maybe not comfortable, but were the right thing. Yeah. So as, as you live out this calling, it's something that happened years ago when you felt called to do this. And so it's you know this progressive step after step that you've been trying to follow. Obviously, you're back in the States now. And you said in the book that you don't feel called to being a talking head, but you feel called to those people back over there. I'm curious as to how does that conversation go down? You've got five and three. Is that the age of your kids? They're six and four now. Six and four. It it always changes, right? So six and four. How do you tell your six and four-year-old, we we feel called to doing this, even though this almost took your daddy's life? Um, Our kids love Liberia. We went back in June to visit and... They did not want to leave. Really, that's home to them. That, especially for my four-year-old, we he was he was about to turn three when we moved there. So it was that was those are his earliest memories. Hmm. Are living in Liberia. That's where his best friends are. He he makes friends everywhere. He has he has best friends here too. But mm-hmm. that I have a good friend who uh, has been doing foster care and they recently had to ask CPS to, to remove the child from their home that they were fostering. This is a really devastating situation, but she comments in a blog that she wrote that people will intending to, to be supportive will say things like, well, yeah, you know, you don't want your kids to have to make sacrifices. And she said, uh, yeah, actually we do. That's part of this life we've been called mm. to. That's what we're doing. We do it together. And I want them to learn that that you make sacrifices in life to do what's right. Oh. And I and I that really resonates with me. Hmm. Like our Amber and I share this calling together and so our children share it with us. And when they start forging their own way in life, maybe they'll have a different calling. Maybe they won't choose to live in a place like Liberia their whole life. And that's okay. As long as they're using their lives 
to follow God. Um, but for now, that means doing it with their parents who who feel called to that kind of service. Hmm. I've heard you say that your uh, your son still prays for his one of his best friends back in Liberia, the neighbor, yeah. so that he doesn't get Ebola. Is that something he's still praying? Uh, well, those that specific prayer kind of went away when we got the good news that Ebola was was gone from Liberia. But is is he still but, praying for? Um, not not really. Does but he, he? But I mean, if we, if I say you know we're going, we're getting ready for bed at nighttime, and I say, mm. what do you want to pray about? And he'll say, oh, I don't know. And I'll say, you want to pray for your friend? And he'll say, uh, yeah. And so we'll pray for that friend. And Stephen will pray for him. I mean, it's still a relationship that he recognizes. And he still still says things like, when we go back to Liberia, I'm going to take this thing for for my friend. Yeah. I guess my question is more like, does he still have like this fear that, you know, his friends back there are in danger more than the normal kid that you would have if he still lived here in Texas, like the average Texas kid would have. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if he gets that. Okay. I mean, cause with Ebola, yeah, he, he understood there's that really scary thing that, that my friend's at risk for, but I don't know if he, if he really gets, if he has the mindset that you and I have, that that place is more dangerous than this place. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad. I don't want him. I don't want him to get that mindset. Yeah, that's good. So the, uh, here's a really important question. The uh, the co-author of the book, a guy named uh, was it Dave or David Thomas? Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, he uh, helped uh, uh, Mark Schultz write the book called Foxcatcher, which became a movie recently starring Channing Tatum. Um, so obviously, his last book became a movie, or at least one of them. <laughs> uh, as you're thinking about that, who's the guy who you want to play in the movie? Whenever Thomas sells the movie rights to the to the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we've joked about that. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Some, okay. some of the folks from NBC threw out a name. I can't, Josh, uh, I can't remember the guy's name. Josh. Some actor named Wait, Josh. are you, are you really, hold on. You said people from NBC? It went, the first time we were doing that interview with Matt Lauer, they were like, oh, oh this is, you know, if they make a movie, you know who should play you. But no, I don't know who Josh is. Josh, do you, you would know if you saw him. Josh Demel, that's his name. Oh yeah, I can kind of see that. Very good, very good. Am- now, Amber thought maybe Jim Caviezel, but I said he's he's, he's way older than me, and he's been Jesus already. Yeah, that's kind of like that's... a big big shadow to follow. Okay, let me tell you something else. I saw on Facebook right after you came back, and you were and honestly you're doing so good in the interviews. And uh, Chris Dowdy, do you remember Chris? Yeah, fellow. Uh, you guys, you have Atlanta. We went to Oxford together. Yeah, yeah. So he posts on Facebook. He said. I can't imagine any of my other classmates that I would rather have in the spotlight other than Kent. And my first thought was, thanks a lot, Chris. I really appreciate <laughs> that. But then my second thought was, man, you've done great. And I remember you know, seeing other Christian friends who aren't connected to our heritage, Churches of Christ or ACU, and speaking just highly of you. And I was just, I'm so proud of how you've handled this. And there's a lot of Christians that have uh, done some not-so-good things that have not carried the name of Jesus well, and you've done a good job. And I know you're going to hate me saying that. And I know you don't like the spotlight, but you've done well and we appreciate it. Well, thank you. I, 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 thanks. Yeah. I think this is the only time that like a Christian minister, uh, missionary person flying somewhere in a private jet is something I'm excited about. (laughs) (laughs)
<laughs> yeah. Do you did you get to keep that little gray spacesuit that you were wearing? Why? No, no. Ac- actually, after I started recovering, after I've been at Emory for a couple of weeks, it struck me I have no memory of how they got that thing off of me. I was wearing scrubs underneath it. Okay. And then, and actually, it was scrubs that had my name embroidered on them. Oh, fancy! My mom had gotten those for me before we moved. Thanks, mom. And and it struck me one day. I don't I don't remember taking that stuff off after I walked into this room. And I asked the nurse, "How did you how did you get that stuff off of me?" And she said, "You sat on the edge of the bed, and we took it off of you in an orderly fashion." <laughs> I said, oh, I, I said, "Did you? What'd you do with my scrubs? Did you keep those? Are you going to sell those on eBay or something?" <laughs> She said, no, we burned those. Oh, that's that's rude. Just burn your clothes just because it has Ebola on it. Yeah. That's such a shame. Well, Kent, thanks for your time, man. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. And thanks, Luke. I'm glad you're okay now, too. Thank you. All right. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>